this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. Let's see if I can get through this intro. <laughs> here we go. All right. Here we go. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> Welcome back, Creative Beasts. This is Random Badassery, the podcast where we ask, what is creativity, how does it work, and how can we use it? This is a new episode for us, or I shouldn't say a new episode style. It is an old episode style that's kind of come back in a way. Um, for those of you who have been around, our normal episodes are studies in a particular artist, whether it is a director a writer, a visual artist, whatever we see for that month that we want to st- we, that we want to study. And this episode is more focused on this is our middle of the month episode is more focused on what Lamb and I are doing creatively, what's inspiring us, tools that we're using for our creativity, anything that we find useful to share with you guys. So uh, hopefully you'll find some value in these. My name is Chad Hall and my co-host is Lam Wen. Hello everybody, how's it going? I want to do a quick, uh, quick, quip. I want to do a quick couple shout-outs. Um, not specific shout-outs to people because I don't have that information. But I was just looking at our stats, and there are people in places other than uh, California listening to us, which is kind of awesome. I just kind of assumed that everybody around us were the only ones listening. So hello to everybody in Pennsylvania, New York, Texas, and Oregon. Hello oh, wow. to nice. 136 people in England. Nice. Um, Hello to people in North Rhine-Westphalia in Germany. Hello to New South Wales in Australia. And hello to British Columbia in Ontario in Canada. There's a lot more, but those are the big ones. And to everybody else, there's a huge category in here that is 
just listed to me. It's actually our second largest category, other. So if you are other, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Lamb, did you want to start off the show with something? Um, yeah, I, I actually, uh, you have the broad stroke on it and I have the, 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 the more specific, I suppose. Um, I've had a few people come up to me this week. Um, I went to a meeting for, uh, a political rally thing and I had random people come up to me and say, Hey, you know, we love the show. Um, so we've got a few locals who are now kind of going out of their way to, to remind us that, that they're in our corner and they're still listening to us as well. So that's been really inspiring. Um, our reader, our readership. Our, our listenership has, has steadily gone up and I feel like that, that gives both Chad and I much more motivation, um, to continue doing, uh, what, um, is reasonably painstaking work. I, I, at some point, I want to, to talk through, um, the process that both Chad and I use to research our subjects because I think, uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty arduous in some sense and it's made us experts in in some of these people in ways that we never imagined that we would be so thank you for for inspiring us to continue doing this because i think it makes both chad and i better artists and in a lot of ways it makes us better art historians so that's that's very very cool yeah i'm not i'm not sure what the term is i forgot what the term for it is but there's a term for um when you familiarize with something, something, uh, you see it more often. Um, you know, like when you buy a specific car, like if you buy a Prius, all of a sudden you see Prius everywhere. Um, there's a specific term for that. And I feel like that's one of the pleasures of doing, um, the study episodes is these artists, some, some of which, um, we're hugely acquainted with already, like David Lynch, you and I were really over prepared for that episode already before we (laughs) even got into the study, just because we're huge David Lynch fans. Um, but like the, the last episode, our Bob Dylan episode, even though I've listened to Bob Dylan forever and I know you have too, the amount of research that went into that episode and the things that I learned and having listened to every song the man recorded, uh, I find myself seeing Bob Dylan in places that I didn't see him before making connections, which is, uh, doing studies into artists. That's, that's a value I think we don't talk about a lot in here, but it allows you to make connections and connections are the heart of creativity. Um, when you can see how this thing and this thing fit together, now you, you've created something else. In um, philosophy, they call it uh, synthesis. They, they refer to it as synthesis. When a thesis and an antithesis meet, you have synthesis of a new idea. And that's kind of the, that's what this is for me, and I, I, I feel like that's what you're saying too. Yeah, this, it's fascinating, um, especially the Dylan episode, because you're, you're right. I mean, you and I have been... For some of our subjects, you know, with um, Ian McKellen, for example, I've been an Ian McKellen fan for a really long time. And given that he's um, in a visual medium, I find that it's easier to find his work versus a person like Bob Dylan, where his catalog is so dense and it spans such a long period of time that you forget how much of, of pop culture and how much of our, our culture in general uh, he's really he's really influenced. And so after the, the month's worth of research that we did into Bob Dylan, both as a person and as an, and, and as an artist... I started to see his stuff in all kinds of things that I hadn't noticed him in before. Um, a couple of books that have quotes pulled from him, um, a few ideas from TV shows, and just they're—they're they're just his influence on pop culture is so so vast um, that it's tough to really understand that until you've done enough research into the man. So yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the synthesis is definitely something that that's clearly seen over the span of five decades and. 
Um, I, I feel like it comes in fits and waves, and especially with our, our current situation in this country, I feel like a lot of those sentiments come back. And so because of that, you can see it not just in the art um, that has been produced, but just in, in the culture of revolution or the culture of, of, of you know, disparity between, between the haves and the have-nots or whatever it may be. And it becomes much more clear that his influence is far beyond just the art itself, but much more in culture as well. I think in some ways it's hard to separate pop culture for uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and maybe even part of the 90s from Bob Dylan as a whole. I think he is just he's within the DNA of pop culture. Sure. And and pop culture in the grander sense, a lot of times we use the term pop culture to to mean just, uh, you know, the teen pop stars and the TV show that's that's hot this year or whatever. But pop culture in the in the grander sense of all culture that is popular, including literature and art and all of these other things that are popular culture, um, things that we share. And that's one of the great things that I I've, I think that we've done um, so far, if I'm going to pat us on the back for a moment. Um, we didn't do it on purpose, but we've done a good job of balancing larger artists, um, you know, like Bob Dylan, whose name are so synonymous that uh, almost everybody knows who they are, with people who maybe don't have the same name recognition. Um, a lot of people didn't know who Isaac Asimov was. And sure. so it's cool to have the opportunity to introduce people to artists that we respect, um, or maybe I should even use the word creators that we respect. In a weird kind of way, too, especially with a guy like Bob Dylan, um, you see how he defines alternative culture. Uh, you know, if you look at his influence on, on 80s culture or 90s culture, I mean, I definitely do think that there's, there's, there's an underlying influence that he has on, on, you know, the, the alternative movement or the grunge movement, for example. And so I feel like with Bob Dylan, because of how he defined himself in the music industry, uh, when he, when he first got his start, uh, there's a certain sense of, of, of just counterculture that's inherently built into his creative process. And so I think because of that, anyone who followed him, um, anyone who had the guts to follow him and try something that was different from what was popular at the time is definitely influenced by the, not just the, 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 the art he created, but the choice to make the art that he did in the time that he did it. And I think the bravery that comes from a guy like Bob Dylan definitely makes it so that other generations beyond him become more and more brave, allow themselves to take more creative chances and, and feel like they can take those chances and still be accepted within some kind of subculture that then becomes the culture that we all understand. So I think that there's, there's, there's an amazing influence, not just in the art itself, but how the art's created. I think that that's one of the, one of the things that people don't um, take into account, you know, when they, when they get mad that an artist becomes um, big, um, there's this, you know, this whole sellout culture that people use all the time, which I just think is crap. Um, you know, when somebody works 30 years to, to achieve something and they achieve it, that's not selling out. That's achieving. Um, yeah. so, selling out is changing who you are to make money. So let's just make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan started doing Pepsi commercials in 1965, that would have been selling out. Sure. Uh, but one of the things that's really important about when an artist reaches that stage is it's not only advantageous to the artist, it's advantageous to all of us because um, they go beyond that uh, minutia of what they actually made, which is exactly what you're saying here. And they become a symbol. Sure. Um, they become a motivating symbol for all of us. And that makes it better, not just for those of us who create, but for all of us who want to do something. 
you know, like if you want to start a business or whatever, you and you like Bob Dylan. I mean, let's go back to one of the biggest businessmen of our time, Steve Jobs. Bob Dylan was his idol. Steve sure. Jobs didn't play the guitar. He didn't sing songs. He made computers and he made iPhones and he made little boxes that go in our pocket that can hold every single Bob Dylan song. Um, or I should say he facilitated the business that made them. He didn't make anything. Um, but he was influenced by Bob Dylan. And mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's an amazing thing. And so, uh, I hope that if somebody's listening to the show for the first time and maybe they're not a creator, that you can understand that just talking about these people and these things might help you in a way that you didn't expect. And since we're, we didn't really plan on talking about this stuff, um, and we forgot last episode to do this, this seems like a good time to tell you our next study episode, our next artist that we're studying, which will be in two weeks from this episode, the beginning of the month, um, we will be doing Neil Gaiman, um, author, and uh, most famously, well, maybe equally as famously, um, comic book writer. If you don't know who he is, um, look him up. Maybe uh, do a little research of your own before we get to the episode so that you can, in your head at least, participate in some way as well. Um, yeah, he's he's particularly near and dear to my heart, too. Neil Gaiman, um, for most of my young adult life, was was m- the narrative story- storyteller, um, both from his books as well as from the Sandman comics, who, which I still hail as one of the, the coolest things um, that have come out of the, the comic book spectrum to this day. Um, and the work that he did with probably one of my, my favorite artists of all time, Dave McKeon, um, so anybody who, who is listening to this episode who doesn't know either of those guys, you really are doing yourself a disservice by not diving into the works of both of those gentlemen and or the collaborations that they did through Sandman and various other things. And if you're a part of the younger audience or you're a parent, you might be familiar with Neil Gaiman through Coraline because he wrote Coraline. Oh, that's um, right. So he's, he's, he's also married to Amanda Palmer, the singer. Um, singer musician is probably a better way to say it. Um, so that's 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 who we're doing next, and I'm I'm actually excited. We, we're both already two weeks into research, so we're we're in we're we're in deep into Neil Gaiman's world right now. But that's not what we're talking about here today. Today <laughs> we're going to talk about Lamb and Me, and what's going on with our creativity, and uh, anything that we find useful that um, we've stumbled upon. And since we haven't done something like this. We may wander off into the weeds a lot in this episode. I'm, f- I'm fairly certain that we are. We're probably in the weeds already. <laughs> we'll just we'll just have to rely on each other to uh, reel the other one back. And so, for those who don't know, our original show um, before we changed to this creativity focused format, um, we focused more on the word random, and we talked about pretty much everything: what TV shows we were watching, um, what books we were reading. What apps we were mad at. <laughs> uh, we went all over the place. And so what we're going to try to do here is we're going to try to stay focused and rem- keep everything related to creativity as much as we can. So we're going to rely on each other for that. Forgive us if we go off into the weeds. As I said, we haven't done an episode like this in a while, so we may be a little rusty. So uh, let's get into it. Lamb. Yeah. What's... Uh... <laughs> What's 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 new in the creative world for you? Um, huh. So I, I, for anyone who who's who's been in my life for the last decade, um, I disappeared 
uh, pretty much off the face of the earth for about six or seven years of my life uh, with, a, with a job that I had where I was traveling more than half the year. Um, and in that span of time, I took a ton of photography. I, I did some, some cool artistic things. It's, it's funny how, how creatively free you become when you go into a town and you know absolutely nobody. Um, and I feel like the last couple of weeks of my life, or I'm sorry, the last couple of months of my life, I've kind of been in the same situation uh, in that I'm working so much these days that I have very little time to hang out with friends. So I spend most of my day in the company of strangers. And so because of that, I, I find myself wanting to revert back to my, my roots as an artist, which is um, a photojournalist or a, a, a journaling person or, or, or just a, a, a journalist, uh, period. So lately, I've been kind of obsessed with time lapses. Uh, so I've been doing time lapses of pretty much everything that happens throughout the course of my day, whether it's my work or whether I'm spending time on a golf course or I'm playing a piano or drawing something. I just time lapse the heck out of everything. So for me, there's a very there's a very interesting sense of of, of space and time that comes with a time lapse um, in the sense that you have no definitive sense of narrative in the same way that you would if you're just watching a video of time and it's in, in, in as it runs. So for me, I've been, I've been not just creating more time lapses, but I've also been watching a ton of time lapses too. So that's been, that's so far has been what, not necessarily what I'm, I'm doing as much as what's been inspiring me lately is the, the understanding of time in a different sense than what I'm used to. So for me, that's, that's where I am. What, what, what's, what's flowing in your creative world at the moment? Uh, well, before we do that, I want to tell everybody, if you're following us on Instagram, you may have had the privilege to see two of Lamb's time lapses within the last week. It was, I think it's last week, right? The, the yeah. airport one was in, within the week. Yeah. Yeah. Should be. If, if not, go, go to, go to Instagram.com forward slash random badassery, all one word and look and check out uh, his time lapses. There's, there's a mediocre one of me drawing the, the Golden Gate Bridge, but the other two that are on there are lambs, and the airport one is um, really I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Um, so go check it out. Um, as far as me, um, I've really just I've been actually knee deep in the book, man. Um, probably nice. deeper than I've been in a very long time. Um, I mentioned in a previous episode that I had printed out the first seventy-seven pages of the book, and I was just going through with a red pen. I finished that today, so tomorrow is going in and typing all the changes, and then the day after that we'll be writing all the scenes that are missing, all the holes, and then hopefully trudging forward. Um, it's uh, it's remarkably under control at this point. What what type of environment are you writing? And I'm always I'm always curious about this because I know that throughout the course of our conversations, um, not just uh, for the podcast but just in general, um, we've talked about. Writers in particular setting up very specific environments that inspire them to write a certain way. So I'm, I'm curious as to two, two questions actually. The first is, what is it about the book that you're focusing on at present? And the second is, what kind of environment do you feel best facilitates you being able to do that? Um, as far as what I'm focusing on right now, I've been, uh, I've had like this, I guess you would say this gap. Um, Something wasn't working for me for a very long time. And I think it's what, what has been separating me from the book. Um, it has been make it difficult, be, made it difficult because I, I knew something was off and I couldn't figure out what it was and I couldn't, something wasn't working. And for those of you who haven't written, um, anything as long as a novel, um, 
I had, I didn't know this before either. Um, it's, it's becomes particularly difficult to separate yourself, what you're doing, writing from the point of view of what a reader is going to see. And what I mean by that is you can, um, get into a scene and you can do really clever things that you really like and do some really good writing and be completely blind to the fact that somebody's going to be completely lost reading the scene or they're not going to know what that sentence means or that there's no storyline that's driving them forward to read the next scene. Um, I think that what I was feeling was that there was um, something missing. And when I went through, I think what I realized is that that's what I had done. I had written some very clever pieces, but there wasn't a solid storyline. And this, this novel, um, I'm not going to go into specifics on what it's about, but it has some particularly complex, um, complex pieces to it. Some, some, there's some complex concepts. Uh, and if I don't make this story very clear and I do not make it, um, very basic in the skeletal framework, then all of the other stuff is, is the whole thing is just going to be a mess and it's going to be completely uncom incomprehensible. So it has to have a strong spine so that I can, I can put all these complex concepts in. Otherwise I'm going to lose everybody. Um, so <laughs> what I've really been focusing on is, uh, this idea of, um, there's, there's a lady, uh, she's a writer and she writes a lot about writing as well. Um, her name is K.M. Wyland. I've never read any of her books. I don't even remember how I found her. Um, but she wrote some very interesting articles. I, I'll actually include a link to one of the ones that I just read recently. Um, she basically asks questions like, what is, what is driving your character in the scene? What, what does your character want? And what does your character need? And there's this complex idea here that it's, it's at the heart of any good written story. Um, your character wants something, and most of the time it's a lie. What they want is not good for them, and that's that's why we're that's why we're watching this story. Um, because if if everything was good in their world, we wouldn't need to watch them. Because a story is about somebody changing, or about sure. circumstances changing for that person. Um, and what they need is is the truth of what they really need. You know, um, like for example, one of the examples she uses is Thor, in in the movie Thor. Thor wants to be king. What he needs is to learn humility and compassion. Mm -hmm. And so that the 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 distance between those two things is what drives the for, the reader forward, is um, finding out how those two things resolve. Sure. And and so the, learning how to structure that and how to put that into a story, especially when you have so much of the story and so many pieces already done, you know, ideally you would have this in an ideal world. When you wrote a novel, the first thing you would write is this is my character's name. This is what he wants and this is what he needs. And then write everything from there. But that's not the way novels work, at least not for me. Sure. They come in pieces, like um, a lot of like what um, David Lynch talked about in um, Catching the Big Fish. The idea of you find a fragment and then you use that fragment as bait to get another another fragment, and and then you use those together as bait to get a bigger fragment. And when you when you have nothing but fragments sitting there, you have to learn to structure the spine, and sometimes you have to learn to throw away fragments, and that's really difficult. 
Yeah, I remember uh, in our podcast uh, we did on Murakami, he said something. He's, he has a bunch of stuff that's very similar to that, how the story kind of tells itself through the characters. Um, so I think that, that the through line for any narrative is, is defining that sense of, of, of need for the character. Um, so, you know, anytime I've, anytime I've struggled with writing a story, it's because I don't really know what the character wants. And that's always, that's always something that now when I sit down to write anything, I really focus on trying to find out what the, 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 the driving motivation is behind, um, the character, because trying to figure out what the story is, is, is impossible unless you know what everybody wants first. You know, right. And one of the biggest one of the biggest flaws in any art form, movies, um, particularly story in storytelling, is assuming that your audience knows what you mean. Sure. Your job isn't to isn't to do that. Your job is to tell them what you mean. And sure. if you don't do that, you've failed. And and, and I think that um, sometimes we confuse that because we think, oh, they just don't get it. That's the yeah, excuse I, of somebody who doesn't want to do the work. I, I remember there, 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 there are a few pieces um, um, of artwork out there, or movies in particular. I'm thinking of one movie in particular that I absolutely hated um, and everybody loved. And, and the reason I hated it was because there was no, there was no the, the, what we're talking about, which is there was no motivation for the, the main character that was clear. And I thought it was really arrogant of the director to do that. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, I think it's called The Thin Red Line. Um, I mm-hmm. hated that movie on so many levels because it was, there was so much hubris in, in the storytelling that I could not stomach it. Um, I mean, I watched it for the sake of watching it and I know it won a bunch of awards and the director is critically acclaimed and all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry I didn't come into this episode with the director's name. I didn't know we'd be talking about this, but that is a great, <laughs> that is a stunning example of how artistic arrogance can lead to horrible, crappy storytelling. I haven't I haven't seen the whole movie. I've seen parts of it um, mm-hmm. because it was around in the day when um, you could turn on the TV and find movies part of the way through. It was a Malick sure. film, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrence, Terrence Malick, Malick. That's right. Ugh, that's right. That's right. That's and Ter- right. Terrence Malick is a terrific director, but oh, he is. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I didn't find that. that. I didn't find that film the pieces that I saw that great. Um, but you know, that's kind of his thing too. He's, I mean, the, the tree of life is one of those movies where you're like, I have no idea what the hell just happened. There's some really beautiful parts, mm-hmm. but I don't know. You know, he, he Terrence Malick and I, a lot of people are going to hate me for saying this, but I, I hold Terrence Malick in this weird echelon of, 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 of directors in particular that are extraordinarily overrated to me. Um, and I know we've talked about him before, but I, Terrence Malick to me is like a less shocky version of uh, Lars von Trier. I, I don't like either. <laughs> if you could see my computer right now, <laughs> I had I, I blanked on his name. I was literally just Googling the director of Antichrist because everything you said about Thin Red Line, in my head I was thinking about the movie Antichrist. I cannot stand anything that Lars von Trier has done. I completely it, agree with that. I I, I I made the horrible mistake of of Netflixing um, that both Nymphomaniac Nymphomaniac uh, ep, uh, I guess chapter part one, one and, and part chapter two. two yeah horrible I hated it I just hated there were everything parts, that Lars von Trier has ever done there were parts of the first one where I was like oh he finally made a movie that I'm going to be able to connect with and then it just oh it just gets so awful uh, we don't make it a habit of criticizing other artists um, people appreciate him. Um, sure. So I know that, like our friend Colin, he uh, he he really likes um, Lars von Trier. Uh, sure. 
And it, it goes back to that thing where, you know, some people get something out of something that other people don't. I've tried, man. I've gone through like three of his movies and every time I'm like that, this is the last one. Um, but you know, whatever, maybe one day it's going to click with me. It's like when I read Don Quixote, everybody's like Don Quixote may be the greatest novel ever written. I was mm-hmm. so bored when I read that book. And, um, sometimes it has to do with where you are when you approach something as well. Sure. Um, and like, like I know a lot of people, I, I, the, the opposite example is true for me when it comes to Aronofsky, for example, a lot of people dislike Aronofsky, but I absolutely love Aronofsky. So that makes sense. Or totally. Yeah, I've, I've seen people criticizing, um, interstellar by, um, Christopher Nolan online, left and right. That's probably one of my favorite films ever made. So, you know, to each their own. Hey, there's some, there's some stuff that I know is crappy Mm -hmm. that I like. Not, not interstellar, but there's stuff that I actually think is, I'm like, Oh, I understand why people can't stand this, but I love it. And we connect to things in different ways. And that's, I mean, that's what's kind of awesome. If we all like the same thing, it'd be pretty boring. Yeah. Um, actually, speaking of movies, that's something I've been doing a lot recently is I've been watching one movie every night before I go to bed. Nice. And uh, it's 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 really interesting because I, I think I've mentioned before that I, I got rid of Netflix and I got rid of Hulu because um, I have Amazon Prime and I have HBO. Both of those um, – HBO comes with my internet connection whether I want it or not. And Amazon Prime I use for the shipping so the video is just included. And between those and like the little things here and there from, cause I have a free basic cable with my internet too that I don't use. So mm-hmm. I got, um, some of the basic cable apps I can plug into those. Between those three things, there's so many things to watch. I didn't need the other two. So I could save myself $20 a month or whatever. Um, but one of the programs or one of the channels that I've been looking at a lot is besides HBO is, um, FX. FX has tons of movies on there. There's like 30 movies, 30, 40 movies every month. They change it every month. So I've found myself between that and HBO just going through and watching different movies. And most of them are movies that I normally would not watch. Um, like, for example, I probably never would have watched the most recent um, remake of 21 Jump Street. Um, I'm glad I did. It was really funny. 22 yeah. Jump Street, not as funny. Mm-hmm. But 21 Jump Street, really, really funny. Uh, so I, that's like a big theme for me right now that kind of fits into what we're talking about too. This idea of like reducing your options. You know, we've talked a lot about minimalism before. But reducing your options and realizing that you can find something that's of value to you with a smaller subset of, of options. You don't need every movie in the world available to you to find a movie you're going to enjoy or even just a movie that has a part you're going to enjoy. I think the other side of that too is finding things that you 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 appreciated at some point in your life but you appreciate much more now because you have a more evolved sensibility, I guess. So yeah, definitely. Well, and plus I feel like um there's this is actually really funny. Uh for those who don't know me, which is most of you, when I was younger I was very much a a metalhead and uh um very much into, you know, like uh I, they're not metal, but you know, like also into Guns N' Roses and uh, all that glam rock stuff too. Like the end of the era there, you know, that was my time. You know, that was my era of music at the time. I was of age, sure. and 
Motley Crue was a big band, still a big band, I guess you could say. <laughs> they had lost their singer. You know, the Vince Neil had left, and they had this like replacement singer. And I remember that it was – I don't know if it just came to us at the right time. It wasn't a, a great album maybe, but my friend Richard and I at the time were really into this album with the, with the new singer that everybody hated, but we really liked it. And I remember reading an interview with the guy. I can't remember his name. And this is so funny, but this what he said here has stuck with me my whole life. And he said, sometimes I listen to bad albums because there's just as much to learn from what somebody does wrong as what they do right. Mm, interesting. And that's kind of how I feel about watching these random movies. Like, hey, let me put this on. What's this? Okay, there's a movie called The Borrowers. It's made for kids. Not a great movie. But there's just certain things where you're like, Hugh Laurie is pretty awesome because I didn't recognize him for like five minutes. And just these little small things. And you're going to pull something out, but that's you have to put that mindset on. You have to put on the mindset of the the analyzer, the the open. You have to be open to anything. I, lately, too, I've been starting to realize the, the, the power of parody as well. Um, I, I was on a weird kick um, over the last couple of weeks of, of finding some of my old favorite movies. I, it all started with Spaceballs. And I, don't get me wrong, it was funny when, when, when I watched it in my you know teen years and early 20s, but I didn't appreciate how clever that movie really, really was until I had a chance to watch it lately. It is... It is, it is my favorite movie now on many levels, um, at least on a comedy, uh, speaking from a comedy perspective, but Spaceballs is amazing, um, which dives me down a whole completely different rabbit hole of, you know, Big Trouble in Little China, um, Airplane, and a bunch of, a host of those other movies that, that have cemented themselves in my head as being some of the most clever movies ever written, um, not just the funniest, but cleverest as well, for their, their satirical value and their parody. It's kind of like going back, which I've been doing a little bit of recently, and watching old Simpsons episodes, like season one, season two, where they hadn't really dialed the show in the way that they have it now, but there's still that wit. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, there's, there's a, I was just watching an episode yesterday, and they go, um, Bart's, it's, I think it's the first time you see Nelson the bully, and Bart's, Bart's gonna get his, his butt kicked by Nelson. So he goes to see Grandpa Simpson, and Grandpa Simpson takes him to the um, military supply gun store or whatever. Um, and while they're standing there talking, if you look in the case down below, there's like little boxes of random things, and one of them says, Hitler's teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and and then that, that little thing is only one thing in that scene, but in later, that's what the Simpsons would be all about. Because there'd be like eight to ten of those things in every scene, uh, so I know exactly what you mean. You go, it, sometimes you you know you watch things and you laugh, but then the second time you go through and you go, now I'm paying attention. I, I find too that I'm also appreciating um, certain things that I I didn't really get uh, when when other people were raving about them, and you'll you'll be happy to hear this. And Crystal, who is you know twenty feet from me, will be happy to hear this as well, but. I'm finally coming around to Futurama. I finally am starting to get it a little bit. And, <laughs> and, and I'm starting to really appreciate how funny it actually is because of how deep the satire is um, and how, how, how strong the parody is in, in each and every episode. So I, 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 I 
given my given that I hadn't really watched it during the era in which it was most popular, I didn't really I didn't really give it as much of a chance as I feel like I should have. And now that I've watched the other night, I, I just watched three episodes in a row uh, from the very very beginning, um, just to just to give it a real chance, just to give it a real shot. And I I finally now I'm starting to get why why both you, Crystal, and pretty much every other reasonably intelligent person I know really likes that show. Um, because there's, there's, yeah, exactly. You know, obsessed with that show. I'm, I'm finally starting to get it. So I, I get where you guys are coming from now. <laughs> oh man, that show is just, you know, what the one thing about leaving Netflix and Hulu is I lost access to every single episode of Futurama at any time I want it, mm-hmm. as well as How I Met Your Mother <laughs> and Star Trek The Next Generation. Three shows that I always seem to dip into. When I don't have something specific to watch, uh, I'll probably just end up buying all of those things on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I ended those, up doing that too as well. Yeah, those are things that, that I'm never going to be like, "Why did I buy that?" Those are things I'm going to carry with me my whole life. It's um, funny and those... that you say that because because I have I have movies like that 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 have gone from every device that I've had movies that I I always will fall back on. Eternal Sunshine yeah, of a Spotless Mind. Yeah, I hear you. Dark Knight for that, me is one of them too. I love that movie for some reason. Amelie um, is one for me that I bought like six times in six different oh yeah. formats. Oh yeah, Amelie I have in VHS, uh, DVD, um, iTunes, <laughs> Blu-ray. I mean, I've got every version of that movie ever made. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. And then those those are great things. I think that that's one of the things that um, going back to this idea of minimalism that we've been talking a lot about recently. One of the things you start to realize when you start minimizing your access, your exposure to infinite options is you start realizing the things that matter. And for me, and I think it's the same for you, um, what you start to find is the more time you invest in those things that are important to you, um, the more you get out of them and the more, um, I don't know, you just blossom as a person by, you know, watching your favorite movie once a month it does something to you in a way that seeing a hundred new movies won't ever do. Sure. And it it's it's like a, going back and rereading books. There's there's a value in focusing on those things that are important, or at least that we place importance on. Maybe is a better way to say it. Um, and I think we lose touch with that because of the ability to have anything we want at any time. You know, it's it. I've done it before, and I'm sure anybody listening here, at least at one point, has done it. Wanted to see a movie and been baffled by the fact that it wasn't on Netflix, wasn't on Hulu. I couldn't watch it on Amazon, and I couldn't even buy it on iTunes. My God. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's shocking to us that we can't have it within five minutes. Ten years ago, if they didn't have it in the video store, you'd have to wait. You know, <laughs> oh, I remember that. I remember that when you when you'd go to the new releases section at Blockbuster and they're just all the DVDs are gone and you have to wait for three days before someone will bring it back. Or even worse, it's something that they they just don't even have. you know it's like an older movie they don't have. Sure, yeah. You just had to remember and hope that one day you'd run across the ability to see that film. Oh, I remember <laughs> going to four different places to find a copy of the Letterbox version of Schindler's List. I literally remember that journey. It took me it took me a full like 48 hours to find a DVD. And it was probably worth it. Oh, totally worth it. I still have that copy to this day. So yeah, completely. I feel like that that's that's one of the things that I really appreciate about minimalism. Um actually I didn't intend to talk about this, but um 
there's a podcast called The Minimalists, and obviously that's what they talk about all the time. Um, their show is kind of more of a question and answer based format. Um, they have a lot of like millions of listeners, so they have lots of questions. Um, but recently, I've been noticing that they're getting a lot of um, undue criticism, uh, especially about their. They, you and I have mentioned actually their documentary before. I, mm-hmm. I think it's just called Minimalism. Um, and people people are accusing them of things like, "Oh, minimalism is just white privilege," and all, <laughs> all these just really mean things. Wow! And that's that's like the nicest thing, you know. There's way meaner stuff that people said, um, but that. I, that whole idea baffles me is that we're so entrenched in this idea of culture that people who don't have money that's oh that was one of the criticisms that somebody said they said want to try minimalism try being poor and mm. <laughs> both of these guys grew up poor so i mean they they know but I, I just think that we're so entrenched in this idea of having and owning and collecting and and being able to have everything we want at all times that we are offended by the fact that somebody wouldn't want that, sure. that somebody wouldn't want access to everything, and I wonder, I, I wonder what that is. I, I feel like in some way, maybe it, it feels like a threat to our ability to have access to those things. And like, if oh, if everybody doesn't want this, then I might, there not, might not be a market for it, and, and then I might lose it. I, I don't know. It's or maybe it's just the internet being assholes, like they can be. Well, I, I think it's the, the reverse of validation in the sense that if, if these two guys who are wildly popular and who seem to be living happy lives can live happy lives without the stuff that you think makes you happy, then it automatically devalues everything that that you, you consider to be the, the cornerstones of your happiness. And I actually kind of feel like that's the point. Um, that's the reason they're doing it is to, to strip away all of the things that think that you think make you happy and 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 really drill down to the things that really do inspire you and that really do do give you a reason to to smile every day you know if we, i remember you know a thread that you and i were on just with carlos and 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 john talking about how just the act of smiling every day or or forcing yourself to smile changes the entire perception of the day you know it changes your your reactions to people changes people's reactions to you um and i feel like i feel like the the the, the backlash that the minimalist guys are getting is is just purely based on the fact that that they're they're valuing things that or they're they're taking away the value of things that people hold assign so much value to and so because of that it feels like an affront to to the lives that that, that most people have chosen to live um, you know based on collecting things and owning things and having things and and using that as a way to to determine whatever your status is in a, a given society or group of people so definitely i feel like i feel like the backlash is is inevitable and i feel like it's 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 validating to them in the sense that if they didn't get a backlash then i think there'd be something wrong with what they were doing and i think that that's something i want to say to everybody that's listening is um in no way are we ever telling you guys what you should or shouldn't do what's right or what's wrong um just because I don't have Hulu and Netflix doesn't mean that Lamb doesn't or that you shouldn't. Oh, I totally um, do. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but what one of the most important things, um, reeling this back to the focus of the show, because I did go on a tangent there, um, the reason minimalism is important to me and um, I think to you as well, Lamb, uh, is like you said, it's about focusing on the value. Um 
And that's important to your creativity. Because if you're not a happy person, how do you expect to create anything, to bring anything into the world? If you were full of bitterness, then you will be blind to, like what I was saying before about um, being blind to the flaws in the story that I was, that I'm working on. If you are full of bitterness and anger, you're going to be blind to those things too. So you're not going to make things of value. If you're lucky enough to be able to break through that bitterness long enough to complete anything. Uh, and, and even though like we, you know, we said we didn't really like the thin red line and we didn't like, um, anything that Lars von Trier's made. I don't think that means that either of them should stop making things. Oh, of course uh, not. Yeah, that's not the intention at all, of course. Every, everybody has a voice. Everybody has a um, a right to express themselves and to make things. And going back to these guys, the minimalists, uh, so if people don't like hearing what they have to say, don't watch, don't listen. Uh, I feel like that there's, there's this culture of where people have to um, plant a flag. Um I have to plant this flag so that people know that I didn't like this. Sure. So that, so in the future, when other people decide they don't like it, they'll know I was there first. And that's, that, that type of thinking is never going to make you happy and it's never going to make you a good artist. Um, if you ever notice that the very successful artists, um, from actors to musicians, uh, they hang out with other actors and musicians that maybe don't make the same kind of music or same kind of movies that they do. That, you know, like when you see Slash talking to, I don't know, like Lindsay Lohan. And that's, that's baffling because it seems like two different worlds. No, they're the same world. They're the world of people who make things. And they don't make fun of, you know, like, uh, they don't make fun of Jessica Simpson because they like to listen to ACDC. Because they respect each other in, and in the difficulty it is that it takes to, number one, to achieve the level that they've achieved, but to continually make things and put them to the public, to put yourself out there in a way to be criticized. Um, because you, by being an artist, you are making yourself vulnerable in a way that most people are not willing to be. I like the, the thing that you said though about about well, I mean, you've said it a number of times on the podcast, but you know, art is inherently generous, um, and I think the extension of that is, I think, creativity is also inherently positive. And for me, for example, like I, the last couple of weeks, um, you know, I, I've, I've had my struggles and things have been difficult, but um, I'm in a wonderful relationship with an amazing person, and so because of that, I feel like there's there's a happiness that that comes from that that's that sense of just core positivity, and so. Because of that, I find myself compelled to to do certain things. Like now, for example, I hadn't thought about music, you know, or creating music of any kind for for quite some time, and I feel like a big part of the reason why that was was because I was really unhappy. Um, and so lately, for example, I can't I can't help but but play any piano I see. Um, I can't help but think about music and listen to music and want to watch movies and want to watch. Um, TV shows or read poems or, or books that I haven't read in a while. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that being happy inherently inspires you to, to search for the creative things, to search for the beautiful things in the world. And then by extension makes you want to create beautiful things as well. So I, I definitely feel like there's a very strong thread of positivity that, 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 that in, in, in inspires creativity in a way that nothing else can. Yeah, there's that huge, mythos of the tortured artist, right? 
that you have to be tortured to be an artist. Well, what people don't realize when we talk about the tortured artist is somebody may be suffering, they may be having problems, but in, in reality, who isn't? Who doesn't have something they have to overcome? Sure. Um, you know, somebody's somebody's pebble is somebody else's mountain, but it's still a mountain, even though you know it's small to somebody else. It's still their mountain. And when when people are creating, you know, you think of somebody like Vincent Van Gogh. We think of him probably as the epitome of the quote unquote tortured artist. Sure. I guarantee you that when the man was standing in a field, painting crows flying over um, the the fields, that he wasn't tortured. He wasn't in pain. That was probably his one moment of joy, was sure. when he was creating. The, the the art of creating was a solace for him. Or or for people um, like, um, I think his name was Augustin Burroughs, um, the running with scissors guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he He had a great deal of pain in his childhood. And for him, creating and putting that into the story was a way out of that pain. Because he, he wasn't trying to wallow in it and stay in that pain. He was using art as a way to get out of it so that he could get to being happy. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right that uh, this is something that took me a long time to realize. But the, the act of creation is ultimately about joy. Sure. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to make things. And if it isn't, then you're faking something or you're unhappy. Um, so <laughs> I guess my biggest creative advice would be, Get happy. <laughs> Do yeah. something that makes you feel good. And, and and the other side of that, too, for me, especially the last couple of weeks, you know, I've struggled with health things. Um, there have been some some darker things that have happened um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah, I won't get into specifics, but let's just say it's been, it's been a difficult couple of months. Um, but I find that I can still remain inherently positive because I, 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 I'm trying to find... Just purely for the sake of maintaining my own sanity, I'm trying to find more creative things, not just to 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 consume, but to to produce as well. And and so because of that, I feel, despite how difficult things are, I still feel like I'm in I'm in good spirits, which sounds crazy considering what's going on. Um, but I, you know, like for example, when we're talking on this podcast, I feel inspired and 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 creative and happy, and I I feel like that's a that's a great lesson, not just for for, for other people, but for us as, you know, for us, the two of us, um, this is what we look forward to. And, and I think the act of talking about creativity and the act of, of, of creating the podcast itself is definitely something that inspires me to, to keep doing what I'm doing when it comes to, to searching for the avenues of happiness that I've found both in, in my personal life as well as in my creative life. And I think that that's something that for me took a long time to really piece together was this idea of creativity being something that makes my life better. Um, sure. You know, going, going back to the emotions uh, uh, you were talking about, is the, when, we, when we focus on something, we, we make it grow. We invest mm-hmm. in it. So if you're miserable and, or there's, let's not even say if you're miserable, if there's, like you said, bad things happening around you, because you can't avoid that, bad things will happen. You know, um, people will die, um, people will leave, um, jobs will be lost. Uh, things like that are going to happen. We don't have control of those things. Storms will come. But if you focus on th- those things, you make them grow within you. 
Sure. Um, they, they no longer become a circumstance, but now they become an identity that you, you're breeding within yourself. So by having something to create, something to work on, this is why creativity is so important to me. Because if, if bad things are happening in your life, but you're working on a novel, and your focus and your obsession is with that novel, or a film, or, or song, or album, your, your focus is going to be on that thing. So those other things are going to roll off you more easily. Um, because you've put your focus and your effort into this purpose and, and purpose will define you. And it, if, even if you make something just for yourself, you're, you're, you're giving yourself an opportunity, an opportunity to, to move through things in a way that I wish I had known when I was 22 years old. Sure. Um, and, and like, here's a question for you. Can you ever, can you think of any time in your life? You and I both have suffered with anxiety. Can you think of ever think of a time in your life when you were totally creative and completely anxious at the same time? Wow. Um, not really. I don't think it's possible. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Actually, I'm I'm trying to to, to rummage through my my the, the, the especially in the the most recent chunk of my life where anxiety was a big part of my daily routine and, 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 and environment, I, I definitely wasn't creative. I was the opposite of creative. I, I, I shunned creativity. I feel like I didn't listen to music for a solid three months of my life because I was so horribly stressed out, very, very anxiety-ridden. Anxiety requires so much focus mm-hmm. that I, I don't think that we could be creative because we've, we've invested all of that energy into the anxiety. Um, I think you and I talked about this in, in that text conversation you were mess, um, mentioning earlier. This idea of uh, me losing my train of thought right in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, folks. It happens. Uh, <laughs> Get it I back. No Get idea. it back. <laughs> I have no idea what I was just going to say. Um, focus is obviously not what I was what I was having right then. <laughs> it's got to be something anxiety related, creativity related, somewhere along those lines. Yeah, well, we'll just have to hope it comes back. But I do want to mention while we're still in this realm, though, is what you let in, the door that you open also affects a lot of things, too. Um, be aware, we're, we're always consuming things. We're always ingesting things at all times, whether we want to or not. There's always a song playing somewhere. There's always a commercial. There's always something that's coming at us. And one of those things for me was social media. And there's a lot a lot of anger um, in this country and specifically online right now um, in both directions um, politically. Actually, if you were just to, to be narrow-minded and say there are only two political directions, but in every direction you can imagine, there's just a lot of anger, a lot of vitriol, um, and a lot of despair for, um, for, both, both, um, for both ends of it. Um, and I think that that was just too much for me. Even just dipping in um, to see something, it, it was leaking in. And I, so I had to like start reducing that a little bit, you know, keep that out. But then when I started to really realize, when I started to think about social media, it wasn't really about the window in so much as the window out. Sure. Um, which Which means that uh, just as much as, 
uh, I could say that there's, there's a lot of angry people out there. I can say that I have anger myself because I'm no different than anyone else. And having a window to pour that out whenever I want is never a healthy thing. You know, when you're, when, when you're opening, um, an app on your phone, it doesn't want to open. It only takes you about three seconds to yell at the developer on Twitter. <laughs> that's a window. That's a window you have to be, to be a jerk. Um, and I didn't want that window anymore. Um, I'm not saying that I deleted my social media accounts, but what I did, and you know this, is I, I took them off my phone. Um, and it's about reclaiming my time as well, um, which in the long run is the message that I want to get out of it, is that all those times when I'm – I actually wrote a short thing about this. Um, I'll put a link to it below if you guys feel like reading it. It's about two-minute read. But basically it was it's this idea of you know when you're when you're waiting for a table in a restaurant – Sure, you can pop in and look at some Instagram photos. You can check in on Twitter. You can check CNN. You can you know do whatever's go- whatever's available, or you could take those things off your phone, keep your phone in your pocket, and look around you. Listen, see the people around you. Uh, write down what somebody's doing because maybe you'll use that for a story someday. Draw a picture of something that's in front of you. Take that time to just be there to be present, um, there's, there's a never ending source of inspiration for creative things around you at all times. I saw there's a guy who named Lee John Phillips. He's one of my current favorite artists. Um, he, his grandfather died and he took a pen and a notebook and he went in and in, in his grandfather's backyard, there was a shed, um, and in the shed were hundreds of tools and screws and nuts and all these, you know, things that an older man acquires in a tool shed. And instead of just cleaning it out, he decided he's going to take that notebook and that pen and he was going to draw every single item that was in there before he got rid of it. Holy cow. He drew hundreds of bolts and screws alone. Jeez. And and they're amazing drawings, amazing drawings. This will all be linked below. Yeah, please. I, I'd love to see that. <laughs> that is, I think it's called the, the Work Shed Project, I think, is or the Tool Shed Project. Um, and it's all just black and white drawings, um, pen and ink. And that is the epitome of what I mean. I could sit in my room right now, and I could draw every little object that's in this room and have a book of sketches full. Sure. That's art. That's, that's, that's true art. That's, that's looking and absorbing and being alive is part of art. And the more that you divest yourself from that, the more that you separate yourself from that, the harder time it is to be inspired. And I think that that's maybe part of the reason why this book is going so well for me is because I, I'm more present. I'm also happier too. I have less anxiety. So both of the things we're talking about. It's based on a conversation that, that we had with, uh, you know, on that, that running text that we had as well, um, about smiling, um, you know, about being inherently generous as a person. And I feel like I, I did an experiment after we had that conversation. I smiled at, at strangers, not in a creepy way, so no one make that assumption. But, you know, I would just smile at strangers. I would put my phone in my pocket. I, I did this for almost a three day span. Um, you know, whenever I was, when I was alone, I would do the things I needed to on my phone. Um, but whenever I was in a public place where there were people around, 
I would make it a point to make eye contact with people and smile at strangers. And the amount of people that, that smiled back, um, and how, how much better I felt about my day because of that is, is, is shocking. Um, and it, it inspired me to do a, a lot more, um, not just creatively, but just with my day. I felt like I had more time, that I had more energy, that I had more purpose through my day. And so I feel like that's, that's a big part of what we're talking about as well. And for me too, um, I've told you this before, but, um, the thing about smiling to me for one of the big things about the smiling all the time is doing it whenever I walk past a mirror, smiling mm-hmm. at myself. <laughs> I haven't tried that yet. For two, two reasons. Number one, the reason that, um, when you smile at someone that they smile back, that they feel better. And the reason you feel better when they smile back to you is our mirror neurons, right? Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're inherently, uh, pack animals as humans. So it's, it's, uh, evolutionary beneficial to us to share emotions. You know, sure. when one, when one person is scared, the other person should be scared too, because there's probably a reason. Mm-hmm. And when one, one person's happy, the other person should be happy so that they can share it. Um, so your brain doesn't know the difference between you and the mirror and another person. So when you smile at yourself, you're giving yourself the same benefit you give to somebody else. When you smile, you're, mir- you're, you're firing your mirror neurons, but also for me, it was this idea of, and this is just something I thought of myself, but like, I think about myself when I picture myself in my head, how do I see myself? Well, if I'm always looking grumpy when I look in the mirror, that's probably how I see myself. Mm-hmm. But if I'm smiling every time I see myself in the mirror, eventually I'm going to replace the picture of myself with a picture of me smiling in my head. And if I see myself like that, then I'm probably going to be a happier person because that's what I see myself as, a happy person. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's playing psychology games with yourself, right? Uh, in, 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 you know, we, we've talked about this um, with, with many things, but I feel like this is one of the, the, the clear places where faking it till you make it definitely has a very positive effect in the long run. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Um, it's, it's about belief, right? Mm-hmm. Be- believe it until you believe it. Because it, it's, it's, emotions are not that concrete. They're so fluid. And going back to what you were saying about, um, you know, you said you were smiling and you felt like you had more time. And there's a weird thing about that. Uh, if anybody's read Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, in that book, he talks about this experiment that was done on seminary students. And basically the experiment, I'll, I'll try to keep it very, very brief. There were many groups um, within the experiment. Um, one, one group was asked to read the story of the Good Samaritan. These are, by the way, seminary. These are all people that want to be priests. Um, one was, one was asked to read, one group was asked to read the book, story of the Good Samaritan. One was asked to read another story. And then the third group was asked to pick whatever story they want from the Bible. And the purpose of them reading the story is that they were supposed, they were told that they were going to have to write their own sermon and and then present it. Um, because, like I said, they're learning to be priests, so they need to learn how to do this. And then of those three groups, there were also two other groups. Um, so that one group was told, okay, you're, you're done pretty early. You should probably make your way over to um, the building where you're going to give the sermon, um, the fake sermon, um, so that you can get there early and, you know, you have, take your time, you'll be calm so you can start. 
And then the other group, which is made up of all different parts of those other three groups who read the different stories, was told, you're late, hurry, get over there as quickly as you can. Mm. And the the real trick here was um, on the steps of the, the place that they're going in to give this um, this sermon. There was somebody pretending to be uh, hurt or in pain or sick. They're basically groaning on the steps. And they wanted to see how many uh, of these seminary students stopped to help this person and wow. of what group. And so, you know, of course, the idea of the Good Samaritan is the idea of stopping to help someone, right? That's the whole purpose <laughs> sure. of the story. Do you think that the largest group that stopped to help this person were the ones that read that story? No, they weren't. And it wasn't the ones who read the other story. And it wasn't the ones who picked their own story. The group that had the largest percentage that stopped were the ones that were given time. Huh. The ones who were told to rush stopped the least. Well. And it's just that idea of, of what you focus on, going back to that, that what you focus on, is, is, is it defines everything. You can want to be a priest and you can want to help the poor and the sick and whatever, but if you're told you're late, it's going to override all of that. Sure. Or if you're grumpy or you have anxiety, you're not going to make that, you're never going to finish that song. <laughs> you're never going to create as long as you focus on things that are destructive. And I feel like I feel like that that's very true. Um, you know, I, we talk about anxiety quite a bit, um, just on a personal level. But I feel like that's very true, just in general, for me. Which is, you know, when whenever things are difficult in my life, I always feel like I'm rushing everywhere. Um, I always feel like there's an urgency to everything that I'm doing, regardless of how urgent something might be. It becomes a mindset. You know, everything becomes overly important, and I never take the time to 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 take a step back and to sit down and breathe and, and listen to a good song or, or watch a good movie or watch an episode of a TV show. I never feel like I have time, but I feel like, I, I feel like more and more these days, I realize how self-imposed that is. You know, the feeling of urgency is something that I instill in myself. I feel like I'm constantly panicked and, and only until recently did I, I make a choice to just not take and it's it's not like I've added anything or taken anything away from my day. I, I still do all of the things that, that I did prior to, to making the choice. I just feel like I'm much, much more at ease um when I'm not feeling like I'm 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 having to rush from place to place or, or, or being urgent. You know, sometimes the smartest thing you can do is to do nothing. You know, that to take to take a moment to, 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 to calm yourself down and to realize that it really isn't that important. It really isn't. It's going to get done. You're going to do it, but you don't have to assign such a sense of panic or urgency to it in order to make it happen. And that's one of the things that I've been doing a lot recently. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe I've talked about this on here before. I've definitely talked to you about this. Um, the first thing I do every day is the most important thing to me. Sure. That's my new thing. Um, so the first thing I do every day, other than um, exor- actually exercises on the top of important things to me right now, uh, exercise, shower, eat. The first task, I guess you could say, I do for the day is I work on my book because that is the number one most important thing to my, me in my life. Mm-hmm. And like you said, everything else will still get done afterwards. But what I found out is those things that you don't want to do, you can still do them when you have almost like no energy. So what difference does it make? Sure. Why should you do them first? Because all it's going to do is sap you from energy and maybe prevent you from doing the thing that you actually want to do. And I understand now why when you read people like Stephen, uh, read you know, on writing by people like Stephen King and they talk about 
their own processes. Oh, they're so common that a lot of these people wake up at five or six in the morning so that they can work on their novel and then have their day. Sure. Because they do that important thing first. And that's, that's been a huge thing for me. It's taken all of that, that anxiousness out of the day. Like you're talking about, because when I have the thing that matters done to me, I don't feel rushed anymore. I used to feel rushed because I had to get through all this stuff so I could do that thing. But mm-hmm. if I do it first, then I, it doesn't matter what happens the rest of the day. <laughs> and I feel like our entire lives are built the wrong way um, because of that. You know, we, I feel like we're built so that we're, 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 we're psychologically trained to try to get those other things done first before we do the thing that makes us happy because we, we're, we're trying to, to reward ourselves at the end of the day for, for completing the tasks that, that, that we have. And I feel like it's, it's the, the, the older I get, the more I realize how, how backwards that is, you know, how completely unproductive that is. Um, you may get things done, but you're going to, you're ultimately going to be unhappy because when you start on, on such an urgent and, and almost negative mindset through your day, everything becomes progressively harder. So by the time you get to the, the thing that you want to do that will make you happy, you're just panicked. You know, I find that to be true even now. Like even, even though I know this, I still find myself falling into that trap, you know, of working so hard throughout the day, getting all of these tasks done and then coming home and, and seeing, you know, uh, the, the person I, I, I love, but feeling just, just panicked already, just feeling like I, I, you know, so even, even though at the end of the day, I want to have this quiet hangout time with, with Crystal or, 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 or to read a good book or whatever it may be, I find like I, I, I'm, I'm not ready to do those things. And I feel like because of the, the reason that that is, is because I set up my day wrong. I set it up, I set it up with the wrong things first. So I definitely feel like that's something that, that not only, not only I feel like I should incorporate more, but I feel like we should all co- incorporate more. I mean, sure, you have to get the things done that you have to get done, but what, what is more important than being happy? You know, I can't, I can't think of a thing that is, you know, that whatever it is that, that you feel like you need to do, um, pales in comparison to whether or not you can survive the things that you're doing. And I feel like the, the core priority is to make sure that, that you have a, a stable place to, to, to stand from in order to get those things done in a positive way. I agree. I agree 100% with that. I mean, um, I think that th- there's this mindset of, uh, as, as Tony Robbins says, he says all the time, he says, people always talk about things they have to do. Sure. What about the things you get to do? Mm-hmm. You know, the things that are a privilege. And I, I think that that's, that mindset is, is destructive, especially from a creative standpoint. It is destructive because life becomes something that is being done to us, mm-hmm. not something that we are doing. Sure. Um, and, you know, I, I know a lot of people, um, there's a lot of people who listen to this. Probably all, all the people who listen to this, they work their butt off. Um, they, they work their butt off to pay their bills and they're tired. Their day's so full that this idea of getting up early to do something creative that's important to them first just seems impossible. Well, there's only two things I can say to that. Well, three things. I'll say, number one, if you really feel that way, maybe you aren't an artist. Maybe that's just not your bag. Um, maybe it's something you want to do, but it's not who you are. 
But I, I think that's very, very, very few of the people. Cause I really think at our heart, all of us are creators. Mm-hmm. Um, second thing I would say to that is if something is really important to you, you really want to do it, you will sacrifice anything to get it done. If you're, if your children were sick and you didn't have the money to buy them medicine, you would sell your television to get medicine for your children because it is important to you. Mm-hmm. And the third thing I would say about that is you have no idea how much energy doing the thing you want first thing in the day gives you for the rest of that day. You feel exhausted. You start doing the thing that you want now at the beginning of your day, sleep a half hour less or whatever you have to do. When you go to bed at night, you're going to feel different. Sure. You're going to feel like you, you conquered the world in one step that day. You took one step to conquering the world. You're going to go to bed satisfied instead of exhausted. And that's a very different feeling. And that's, that's a big thing for me. Um, and you know, like Lamb, we promised to talk a little bit about tools in this. So I had a question for you. Actually, it's two questions, but they're kind of related. Number one, I know we're talking a lot about time and stuff like that. So I think it would be beneficial maybe for both of us to just talk about what we use to manage our time. Um, and then any other apps that you want to talk about that are important to you creatively? Huh. Um, I can start my... first if you didn't have time to think about yeah, it enough. Yeah, I, I have a little bit, but go ahead. I, I, I want a second to kind of gather my thoughts on that one. Okay. Um, if you have been around long enough that you listen to this show before it was all about creativity, and you probably know I'm a task management app nerd. I've used them all. It's because I can never find, seem to find the perfect thing. And there, obviously there is no perfect machine. Um, I honestly, I'll tell you right now, I think that the best task management app out there from having tried all of them is honestly Todoist. They have the perfect combination of features. Um, it's flexible. It, it works for almost everybody out there. That is exactly what you should be using. I don't use it. <laughs> I, I've I've tried um, many times to go through. I've I've used it for a year at a time, and, and it's like I said, it's great. But the problem that I always seem to have is just the initial setup of the apps um, does not work for the way my brain works. As much as I love that app and I want it to work, I don't get a glimpse of things in the way that I need the glimpse. And sometimes that's important when you're talking about tools like this. It's not always about the features. Sometimes it's about finding something that thinks the way you think. And even though I think that Todoist is the best made, they have the, the features set that everything, it's all right. And they're moving in the direction. They're always innovating. They're a great company. Uh, I just can't get over that hump of being able to see my week the way that I need to see my week. And being able to schedule things the way that I need to schedule them, which sometimes can be a little bit anal. Because I'm, for me, I like to schedule things, especially the more I can schedule all the boring stuff and do that, you know, maybe for the next year, have everything scheduled, at least um, the major stuff, the more I can let go and create. So for me, I've been using, uh, I've gone back to OmniFocus. Um, OmniFocus is not cheap, by the way. Um, it's a really well-built app and it's built on the GTD methodology. If anybody knows what that is. Um, but the reason that it works for me is when I go in, I open the app. The first thing I see is the forecast for the week and it's got a number next to every single day. 
And every time I'd open that app, I know how many things I have to do on each of those days. And if I didn't have that constant reminder, I'm not mentally prepared. Mm. Um, it's really important for me, like, for example, on Sunday to open that app and see, oh, I only have two things scheduled on Wednesday. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to click that Wednesday and see what those two things are. Oh, it's two small things, too. Wednesday's free. So now all of a sudden on Sunday, I know I'm going to work my butt off on the book on Wednesday. And it gives me something to look forward to. It works with my psychology the way that I need it to. Um, and it's the only linear thing. You know, what if, what if nothing else we perceive in the universe is linear except time? I well, don't know. What, what do we perceive as linear that isn't time? Um, I don't know. Other than a line. Gravity. Is gravity uh, linear? I don't think gravity is linear. Um, consistent, but not linear. Well, consistent, but not linear. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. But what, but what would it mean for our concept of the universe if time wasn't linear? Right. That, that, that messes up a lot of stuff. <laughs> well, it, definitely, it definitely changes a lot of our perception of ourself. Like even, even if we understand that, that the concept of time itself is different by perspective, even from the perspective that we're describing time itself is linear. You know, the thing that you, I think what ultimately what it would challenge is free will. Yeah. Because if I were able to move back and forth, chances are I probably wouldn't be able to change anything. I just re-experience what already happened, right? Sure. So then what would the difference between re-experiencing something in the past and not being able to change it? What would the difference between that and the present be? Well, then we go back to the concept of determinism. Was the choice that you made always the choice you were going to make? Yeah, I'm I'm halfway through Sam Harris's book on free will. Yeah. And there's some interesting stuff in there about how free will doesn't really have a good argument for it. You know, what's funny is that I think in the long run, the small choices, there's some aspect of free will to it. But like, for example, with where I am right now, I believe I was always going to be here. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time in my life that I've had that feeling that strong. Like, this is exactly where I was going to be. I think it's something that I think this is why people, as they get older, tend to go back to religion. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it starts to feel, dare I use the word, is things start to feel like there's a plan. Mm. You know, for example, like I look at this for the questions doing the podcast I'm doing now. Yeah. It relates to so many things from my past that it looks like, of course, I ended up doing this. Of course, I did. Everything in my life was pointed towards it in some degree. The the trigger is the full meal and you have the cigarette. The reward is the nicotine buzz. Or it is the oral fixation. It's, it's going to be different for everybody, but there is a reward there. So the way you, the quickest way to build a habit is to find a bad habit and rip out the middle. Find the trigger, find the reward, rip out the middle, and put the thing in there that you want to do. You know, for example, if you um, if you eat uh, bad food, you know. 
you're you're always every time you walk by the fridge, you open the freezer and you eat a popsicle or a um have some ice cream, you know. You, you shovel in some Ben and Jerry's. What you can do is understand that, oh, my trigger apparently is walking by the fridge. My reward is the satisfaction of having something in my gut. What if I took the ice cream out of the fridge and I put something else in there? So that the trigger, when I walk by there, boom, I walk by there. Now, instead of having ice cream to grab, there's carrots. And I put the carrot in, and now I'm having the same satisfaction. Because uh, when it comes to eating, it comes to food, uh, we, we're all triggering memories most of the time when we eat something. We're triggering the time we had it for the first time. So we're triggering a, a sensation of pleasure. So if you want to build a healthy habit of writing every day, find something that you do every day that you don't feel good about. That you want to get rid of and rip out that middle and put writing in there. You know, like for, for me, one of the, one of the things that I did was, um, I would have, you know, Instagram or Twitter in the bottom part of my phone screen and I would always be dipping in there. Right. So what did I do? I took those apps out of there and I put my Kindle app in there and I put the podcast app in there and I put my notes app on that row so that now when I put my finger in that automatic spot, that automatic trigger, I can't open those apps. Now what I can open is a book to read. It's you're just you're using your body and your brain the way it works you, instead of fighting against it. So bringing this back to Frida Kahlo, right? Um well, she created a habit of painting because, you know, she's in this bed. Now like I said, she could have focused on being in pain. She could have focused on so many other things laying in that bed. But what she chose to do is put an easel above her. And focus on that. And that's where her energy went. That's where she went. She created a focus. And if you want to change something, if you want to make something, change your focus. Just snap yourself out. Find something else to focus on. Stop paying attention to the things that suck. I find that that also helps me to... to um, I was really good at one thing, um, and I wanted to get better at another, and I used them in conjunction with each other to create uh, a kind of synergistic momentum that led me to doing both better. And that's that's one of the things, even going back to what we said at the beginning of this episode about our, our separate podcasts that we're going to be doing, that's a way for us to build this up and make this better and other things in our creative life. So that's another important habit, too, that Lamb brings up is um, – you're always, I think by nature in our lives, we're always going to have one or two legs. Um, I don't mean just physically. I mean, <laughs> uh, as far as what our focus is, you know, you're going to have your main focus, but then there's all these other little things and using those, um, and focusing on those things because I'm good at this and I'm good at this. Those build on that leg. They, they give support to that leg. They strengthen those legs, um, so you're you're creating a synergistic relationship there, like Lamb said, and that's a powerful thing. You know, like she used her medical knowledge in some degree in these paintings. She used her life. She used her relationships. She used her pain. She used the tools that she had. And and that is, if you're going to take any lesson from Frida Kahlo, it's not that if she can do it, you can do it. It's that look at the tools you have. Limit your tools. Um, based on the thing that you said earlier too, uh, which is, um, people, people are, are tricked into thinking their entire lives that the, 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 the abundance of choice is actually what makes you happy. But uh, both you and I have, have seen countless examples, read many books and seen a number of different sources that say the more choices you have, the less happy you tend to be. 
So in Frida's choice, or in Frida's case, for example, it was by necessity. It's because she didn't really have a choice. She was limited to her environment, the tools at hand, um, and a very specific perspective on the world. But if you if you want to get started somewhere as an artist, try to limit your choices as an artist. Pick a medium, um, pick a subject, or pick one particular thing and get really freaking good at it. <laughs> and then and then use that as a way to build that tool so you can add it to your right. toolkit to do other things. And you'll see that in a lot of great artists. Look at Van Gogh, the blue period. He limited himself to blue. <laughs> I mean, just these, these, uh, yeah, it was abducted from his home. Um, and the body was discovered sometime later. Um, and the whole host of random conspiracies that came up that sprouted from it. I don't know that a lot of the specifics of it, but so what do you got? Basically, a couple of details. The, person who stole the baby put a ladder the baby's room was on the second second story the person who who kidnapped the baby this is charles Lindbergh's child the famous aviator charles Lindbergh, uh, considered the most famous man in the world at the time put the ladder up to the window and supposedly snuck into the nursery and took the child and then as lamb said i think it was three or four weeks later they found him um dead in the woods so the the man who was finally arrested for the crime was Charles Hot, Hartman Hotman Hotman. I think it's H A. My spelling. This is handwritten. I think it's H A U T M A N. He was a German immigrant, and he was convicted, and he got the chair. He never admitted to committing the crime, but he also never really talked. Um, it's. There's a lot of details about that. That's not the direction I'm necessarily going to go. But he was very strange in the whole thing. And everybody, that's where a lot of the conspiracies came from. Everybody felt weird about him being the person. And what ended up happening, the way they caught him is the money that was given, that Lindbergh gave the ransom money, was marked bills, and he was caught passing one of the marked bills. So that's how they caught him. Now. One of the questions, and this is the one I'm going to focus on, is was Charles Lindbergh himself, by the way, the the child's name was also called Charles Lindbergh, but was Charles Lindbergh, the adult, involved in the kidnapping of his son, in the kidnapping and murder of his own son? So why do people ask that? People ask that because, first of all, he refused to let the cops negotiate with the kidnappers. He would only do it himself. The FBI and the police, he, t- he, t- would not, he would not allow them to do it. And this was back in the day where if you had enough power, you could make something like that happen. And he was friends, I think, with the governor. So the governor just basically told them, let him do it. And this is really weird to me. This is, I think this is the point that got me paying attention to the episode. So the, the kidnappers wanted $100,000. Lindbergh negotiated with them and said he would only give them 50. What father negotiates the price of the ransom for their baby? And especially a guy like Charles Lindbergh, who was infinitely wealthy at the time. That's weird, right? And then he refused to let the police follow him to the drop. Well, that's that's one of many weird things. I, one of the things that stuck out to me about it, the, the thing that stuck out in my head was the, the, the lack of fingerprints. Um, yeah. On, on a, I mean, how, I mean, 
So for people listening, they, they fingerprinted the baby's room. And I don't know if they fingerprinted the ladder, but they fingerprinted the baby's room. And they didn't find any fingerprints, which at first you go, okay, that's not that weird. The guy who broke in was wearing gloves. No, no, no. No, they found no fingerprints. Nobody's fingerprints. They didn't find Charles Lindbergh himself's fingerprints. They didn't find his wife's fingerprints. They didn't find the nanny's fingerprints. They didn't even find fingerprints of the baby itself. Yeah. Now that's fucking weird. That is fucking weird. And that makes no sense. So unless so someone had to have gone through the room with a fine-tooth comb, um, with a, a wet towel and literally wiped vigorously wiped in some cases every single surface because you have to remember like fingerprints are typically applied by by body oil and oil is not water soluble easily or quick that mean to literally find no fingerprints not even a partial fingerprint anywhere in that entire room of a single person that lived in that house is physically impossible without some kind of human intervention and this was at a time where where fingerprints weren't really well-known as an investigative technique, which makes it a little bit even stranger. Um, There's something I can't remember. There's something to do with this case and the future of fingerprints. I think it's uh, something to do um, with Jig or Hoover. It's a silver nitrate thing, yeah. Yeah, so there's there's something that comes out of that. But this is the thing. This is, I didn't think about this until you said it. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the other weird thing about this, and then I'm going to remind me to go back to the fingerprint thing. Okay. Um, because you just kind of put something together for me. So here's where things get a little bit weird. People don't, a lot of people don't know this, but the little baby, baby, we'll call him Baby Limburg. Baby Limburg actually suffered from macrocephaly, which is, for people who don't know, big head. So um, think of Andre the Giant, but if it only happened to your head. Um, I think maybe Rocky, what was his name? Rocky from Mask. I think he had oh. macrocephaly. Yeah. Um, it's, and it leads to other internal deformities. So you're wondering why I'm bringing that up. Well, here's something a lot of people also don't know. Charles Lindbergh studied eugenics with Dr. Alex Carroll. Eugenics is basically the the belief in selective breeding that if you know there's mutations that they should be cut out of the human bloodline in other words nazis um and Lindbergh studied with this famous eugenic doctor so one of the theories posits if he believes that the weak should be rooted out of the human bloodline as a man Lindbergh, and his baby has macrocephaly what does that say? You know, does he want the world? Because the thing is, it takes a little bit of time for these things to start developing. And if you watch the videos, there's a video of the baby. It's not starting to show quite yet. So the theory is, what if Lindbergh had, we'll say, Charles Houtman kidnap the baby? And his intention to kidnap the baby was not to kill it, but to take it and hide it in some kind of institution somewhere. And then everybody just say that the baby was stolen. And Lindbergh would know where it was and he could support it. But as far as the public knew, the baby just ceased to exist. But in the process of kidnapping the baby, something went wrong and the baby died. Well, that was the, the original posit. What, I mean, from not, 
I'm sorry, one of the original theories was that um, Lindbergh himself was trying to, to get the baby out the window and dropped the baby. Now, here's another weird thing about it, too. The baby, when they found the baby, it had been, there were their parts missing. And it it had been associated with animal predation. In other words, animals ate part of him. That's what they said. But in this show I was watching and this expert said, she's like, that doesn't quite make sense because some internal organs were missing while some external were left. And she said, I don't know an animal that would pass the lungs to eat the heart. In other words, why wouldn't they eat the lungs first? Sure. So the theory is that if macrocephaly also leads to internal deformities, once this child was dead, did they remove the organs so that people wouldn't know? And then that takes me back to the fingerprint thing, which I'd never thought about this before. So say the baby is deformed, right? And Lindbergh knows this. What if that nursery was a setup? And no one had ever been in that room before. And the baby was kept somewhere else because he was a deformity. And that's why there's no fingerprints. Because no one ever went in there. Yeah, that's crazy. Huh, fascinating. Very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, by the way, I think that, that, that Lindbergh was definitely involved somehow. There's too many things I, pointing I, at I, him. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. I mean, the fingerprint evidence alone. Like, even even if, because no one else has that type that type of access. I, I would like to challenge people to do this um, at some point, which is take any piece of furniture in your house, like a, a I don't know, an armoire or table or something like that. Try to clean it as best you can and remove every fingerprint from it. And like test it for fingerprints after the fact. I guarantee you'll find at least one. Yeah, and I'll do that for a whole room. Yeah. With baby stuff in it. <laughs> that is literally impossible. So I actually your theory sounds plausible considering what we're just describing about fingerprints. Like it's just literally impossible to remove all fingerprints without an incredible amount of time and scrutiny. Right? Like if you knew nobody had ever been in that room and you just went in, like they said the room, like nothing really was out of place in the room either. Yeah, look pristine. Yeah, that was, that was one of the things. And that's why they thought that he might have been trying to take the baby out the window because it looked, you know, like it it was more sensible from the way it looked that somebody was coming from the inside going out than from the outside coming in. Because if you were coming in the window, you'd probably knock something over or step on the sill. But then the problem with that theory is like, if you're going to fake something, why bother taking the baby out the window? Why not just walk it out the front door? Sure. Unless you're hiding it from your mother and the nanny. I mean, your wife and the nanny. Yeah. Which is possible. He might have been the only one that was in on it. Yeah, I mean, considering his 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 interesting eugenics, it, it's very possible that he was the only one who's in it. Awful, 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 if, that's, if any of that's true. Now we'll talk about rewriting history. Like, most famous man, worst man ever. Goes back to our, would you kill for your child thing. <laughs> And it it poses a a more interesting question is, oh man, I I have a hard time even saying this sentence out loud. Um, 
if your the quality of life of your child is horrible, would you be willing to kill your child to lessen the pain of that? Mm. Yeah, like um, Terry Schiavo. Yeah, exactly. That's a good example. Yeah, very difficult question. And that's that's one that I don't even know how to begin debating because, man, I don't know. I, I literally just want to throw that question out there. I, I, I personally don't have children, so I don't know what it would be like to watch my child live in excruciating pain. I just don't know. Yeah, the, the thing that's difficult about that is if you push far enough on either end of it, they both make sense from, um, neither of them are cold-hearted. They both yeah. make sense from a parental perspective. You're like, I don't want them to suffer because I love them. And then there's the other end, like, I don't want anything to ever happen to them. Because I love them. Yeah. And that's what makes that one very difficult. That's a brutal one. Well, guys, this is where you come for the questions that don't have answers. <laughs> <laughs> or the questions that you never, ever wanted to vocalize, including the people, including you and I, who, like, I never thought I'd actually say that question out loud. <laughs> Well, that's what I've been, I've found myself, you know, even though like I'm still every once in a while finding weird stuff, what I'm really fascinated with right now is these kind of questions where it's like, what is that? What would you do? And so I've found myself writing down little questions for the show. But I also like that we just kind of randomly talk. Yeah, this particular conversation has taken some very, very odd turns that I did not anticipate. Yeah, it's truly random. We went from... Uh, basically, content creation to testicles <laughs> to the Lindbergh baby. Yeah, let's not forget in the entire check in there about physical and mental health and ball checking. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, and the four tendencies. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's cut it. Uh, also, a quick plug um, just maybe if I have an audience, then I'll, I'll be more on top of it as well. Um, speaking of, uh, you know, um, the four tendencies. Um, I my blog is going to be at thevacantroom.com as well. What are you going to use for it, by the way? Um, right now, I'm starting with Square, um, but I may evolve that into something else as it becomes. I, the reason why I like using Squarespace is because it forces me to get the heck off my phone. Mm. You should look at that blot.im thing. Yeah, I, I will. I mean, the moment you mentioned it, it sounded really enticing to me. But then I, I go back to my overriding priority, which is I need to put my phone away. Oh, yeah. But you could you could do that just by having a text editor on your computer um, and dropping those into your Dropbox folder. That's true. It's, but then it adds a step. And it's $20 a year. Jeez, oh, that's really <laughs> that's really sexy. Yeah, because yeah, I'm paying I'm paying that stupid sixteen bucks a month for Squarespace right now. I can't say that it's a great service. I apologize, Squarespace. You guys are totally worth sixteen bucks a month. It's um, it feels stupid when you're only doing one thing on the website. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I manage a couple of websites, so it's not that bad. But still, um, I, I I'm so used to getting things for free, which is again one of the things that we talk about. You know, if it's if it's worth if, if something is good enough, be willing to pay for it because that means that that person can continue doing it. Right. Yeah. See, one of the things that I always, that makes me always want to pull away from things like Squarespace is not because I don't want to pay for it, it's literally because the amount of features that are available will just distract me. Sure. So something that's like, oh, I can only do three things on this site. Cool. Then <laughs> that's what I'll do. Um, Okay, so make sure you guys go check out Lamb's blog and follow him on social media. 
Um, on Instagram and Twitter, I am at the vacant room. And I am Holy Fool Productions on Instagram, Holy Holy Fool on Twitter, and you can search for Holy Fool Productions on Facebook. And uh, oh, holyfoolproductions.com is the website. But if you really want to check out the blogs that I've been doing that I mentioned, I'll have links to the ones I mentioned before, but go to Patreon and become a patron. Support Holy Fool, support Random Badassery, and you can support Creative Minds. And I only I made it simple. There's only one tier, $5 a month. Keeps it, keeps it easy. If you're a patron, you get everything. That's it. No um, privileged levels, at least not for now. You know, if I'm making t-shirts or something in the future, we'll change it. But for now, that's good. And uh, until next week, hey, please go over to Reddit and share some stuff with us because it might come up in the episode. We uh, we appreciate all of you. Ow!